This is a very special edition of the Flower Confessional. Mr. Dan is not here, but I am Angela, and I am here with my friend Sarah. Who... Hello! Yeah, hi. I'm Sarah. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that we're going to do this. I'm kind of sad that Dan's not here. Yeah. But I think that this will be really cool, and eventually maybe we can all do an episode together. So mm-hmm. I wanted to bring Sarah on, because Sarah has a really cool story that ties into a lot of what we talk about Tell me a little bit about yourself. Talk about how we met. So we met in a very, you know, kind of new age sort of way. Wow. It was through um, a photographer that we both worked with. And I worked with him once. I'm also a makeup artist. And he was like, man, you remind me so much of this, this other makeup artist I know. I feel like you guys would be such good friends and, like, told me about her and... Um, he had told you about me as well. Then kind of out of nowhere, I was like, Hey, do you want to be friends? (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. That was awesome. A person who vaguely knew both of us, he knew me better than he knew you. Yeah. But somebody on the outside was able to see that we're very similar. And then we connected and yeah, I remember getting that message from you and it was a very long message that was like, Hey, can we be friends? And it was very cute. It was very like elementary school. Mm-hmm. Like we're sitting on the bus together and it's yeah. like, will you be my friend? Yeah. And will you come to my birthday party? Yeah. And then we became friends. So it's great. Uh, Sarah is also, God, you're fucking so many things. You're a mom. A lot of things. Yeah. Do you want to just like throw out a few things that you would say describe who you are or things about you that are unique and notable that you want to talk about and kind of elaborate on a little bit more today? Sure. Um, All right. So my story is long and uh, winding and ups and downs. And right now I would consider myself to be a sober single mom. Um, I was an addict for a large majority of my life. I've got almost three years sober this spring from all drugs and almost a year with alcohol. All growing up, that was kind of my persona, was the party girl. And after being the party girl, it turned into being the sick girl. And that became my persona. I have a lot of health issues um, that kind of just became who I was for a long time. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, endometriosis, factor V Leiden, and the list kind of goes on there. And then as well as uh, mental health, I was diagnosed borderline in high school Uh, borderline personality disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. And my health journey has been kind of the craziest thing, I think, about me. And like I said, kind of just became my persona. I went from being the party girl to the sick girl. And recently, I spent two months in the hospital. I was on about 30 plus pills a day. And eventually my body just shut down. And I had different nasal tubes. I had three different nasal tubes. I was in and out of the hospital for two months. And and I visited you. You did. I remember that. Yes. Girl still looked fly as hell with a feeding tube. <laughs> Have to say, 
Yes. And uh, that was a hard time. It was. It was a lot of, you know, it, it took it took me down the path that I'm on now. And so if you'd asked me this question a few months ago, I would have probably given a much different answer. But now I just consider myself just a mom and a passionate um, spiritual person on this growth journey towards my passions and my dreams. It feels like another lifetime ago. After the last hospital that I was in, I was discharged, no feeding tube, and my stomach had not been used for two months. I had no way of getting fluids or, or any of my medication. So I decided to detox, and I detoxed at home. I was medically discharged, so they knew that this was going to happen, which is very dangerous, and I do not recommend somebody just attempting to detox off of that many meds. So let's talk a little bit more about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. First of all, a lot of people have heard of fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have heard of endometriosis. Those are fairly easy things for people to look up. But talk yes. about hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and just a really brief description of how that affects your life. Yes. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a genetic mutation. There are 13 different subtypes. Um, 12 of them, they've found the genetic marker that causes them. And... Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome affects your connective tissue. The type that I have is type 3 or the hypermobile type, which means that all of my connective tissue, which is your entire body, is extremely stretchy. Think of a piece of gum. The more you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it, eventually it's going to snap. So every joint, every everything holding my body together can be overly stretched and hyperextended. I suffer a lot with my knees popping in and out of place or fully dislocating and having to put them back into place. Talk to me about having invisible illnesses and how that affected you. Because I think you talked to me about knowing that there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you knew that when you were an adolescent, you knew it when yeah. you were a teenager. And so talk about, I mean, you kind of had this persona mm -hmm. As this party girl that mm -hmm. was kind of crazy, to put it in a very brief term. And so when you've got a person who's got this sort of druggy party addict persona mixed with, oh, she's a little crazy, mm -hmm. she's mentally ill, she's whatever... How did that play into when you realized, oh my gosh, I'm in pain, I don't know what's going on, Yeah, nobody believes me, like, talk about that, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so growing up, from the time I was two until I was 15, I was a competitive dancer. I danced seven days a week, and a lot of people that have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome will be dancers or gymnasts because we're very flexible, and that obviously is a... A good thing as a dancer to be really flexible. So I was the Gumby of the group. The summer before freshman year, we were at a dance competition and I did a jump and landed on my left ankle at a right angle. And I tore every tendon and ligament and nerve in my ankle. Now, at the time, no one understood why I didn't break my ankle. But now, it's more well known just because my tendons are able to overstretch to that degree, and that's why my ankle didn't break. It just snapped all my tendons because I came down on it so hard that they stretched enough, but then eventually just snapped. 
protected the bones, but was a much harder healing process. And as a 14-year-old, you don't really do your physical therapy. And that led to that October was the first time I had a muscle spasm in my low back. And that's what brought me into the doctor for the first time with it. They immediately put me on extremely heavy doses of muscle relaxers and Vicodin at 14 years old. Wow, smart. Smart of them. Yes. And Sarcasm. They had me on it for six months and then just took it away. There was no weaning off process. It was just, you can't possibly be in that much pain anymore, so we're taking this away. At that point, I was still in so much pain, and no one really knew why. So even before I was an addict, I was already pegged as an addict. I didn't know any better. I just knew I was in pain. So you're 14. You just had an injury that should have resulted in an ankle breakage, but was not. You were put on heavy painkillers, and you were still in an extreme amount of pain. So what was the amount of time between realizing that there was something wrong where you were in pain every day and actually getting a diagnosis that you had a chronic pain disorder? Nine years. Nine fucking years. That's crazy. I was 23. Okay. So I was 14 when it happened, and I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia at 23, diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome at 27. Okay, so you were living with these really serious chronic illnesses that are Mm -hmm. hard even for adults with diagnoses to manage. Yes. Did you have issues with people believing you? Nobody believed me. That was the biggest thing. At that age, it's not normal for, you know, a teenager to talk to their friends like, hey, are you guys in pain all the time? Like, and I I kept asking and I, it didn't make sense to me because... Nobody talked about it and nobody believed me. They all just thought I wanted more pills because they saw me go from this straight A student dancer to all of a sudden I'm partying and I'm, you know, I'm drinking, I'm smoking. And that was me just self-medicating because I went from all these medications to absolutely nothing. I'm still in the same amount of pain. No doctor will listen to me. And so I self-medicated. And that at that point, it was like nobody cared what I said. They all just thought it was a way to try and get more pills. You and I talk a lot about victim mentality and how mm-hmm. that's really affected our journey to healing. Mm-hmm. I haven't had physical illness or pain like you have, mm-hmm. but I had mental health issues Starting at around the same time, you started to have your physical health issues. And I understand you also have mental health stuff too. But speaking both from mental health and physical health, they're all these invisible illnesses. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked a lot about how when you have an invisible illness that nobody's listening to you and nobody is validating or able to quantify or qualify what you're experiencing... Once you get that diagnosis, it feels like an identity because it's very much like, oh my gosh, now I can name this thing. Mm -hmm. It's something I've been dealing with for so long Mm -hmm. that hasn't been acknowledged. So now it becomes like a part of me. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that was part of your life too? I definitely think right around that same time was when my 
mental health started to come up as well. I had, um, that was right when my traumas happened, it was a year later. Uh, and just going through all of that kind of started me down a bad mental path. And I got diagnosed as borderline personality disorder. Once I got that diagnosis, to me, it felt like I had an identity with that. But then it also gave people a reason to be like, well, she's definitely not still in pain because she's crazy. She's just being dramatic. So then I re it felt like I had to fight even harder to be like, no, I'm in pain. I'm in pain every day. Just a question about that really quick. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that, obviously you said that you had a trauma, mm -hmm. but do you feel like the mental health aspects of your life mm -hmm. were made bigger or more significant or even contributed to in a large part because you were in chronic pain and because you weren't validated about that? Do you think... I mean, I would imagine being in chronic pain for years with no diagnosis and nobody believing you that that would give you anxiety, depression, mm -hmm. distrust, yeah. paranoia, all kinds of things. And they definitely, they just feed off of each other. The more stressed and anxious I was, the more pain I was in. The more pain I was in, the more depressed I was. And it was just this awful cycle and it was really hard to actually differentiate between what was causing what or what was worse at that point. It just fed off of each other and turned into this big, huge monster that I felt like just couldn't be tackled. Right. So you and I, again, we have spoken about this. We've really connected about this. We've connected in a million different ways. Yes. Many ways. <laughs> all, yeah. All the ways. <laughs> yeah, all the ways. As far as I can tell, timeline-wise, you had some trauma, you had an injury, you had a lot of pain, you were self-medicating, and over the course of time, it seems, based on what you've told me, that chronic illness and mental illness seem to kind of take over your life for a little while. Oh, yeah. And that became something that was like a 24-7 thing that you kind mm -hmm. of had to live in and manage, and that's way too much for one person. Mm -hmm. The cool part about your story is that you are, would you say that this is one of the healthiest times in your life? Would this you say? Is, this is the healthiest I've ever been. Okay. Awesome. So that's awesome. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Also, you did it really on your own. So you were mm -hmm. told you were going to have to be on pain meds your whole life. Yeah. You were told that you have borderline personality disorder, which mm -hmm. is a personality disorder that has a lot of stigma attached to it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're able to maintain a relationship with your child. You mm -hmm. have friends. You have had successful long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. So that diagnosis doesn't hold a lot of weight no. with who you are and how you're living your life. Yes, I'm considered a recovered borderline. Right, and we've talked about how... <laughs> right, and we've talked about how... We have a lot of issues with the term borderline personality disorder because mm -hmm. it's very misogynistic and it seems to be diagnosed in women and girls way more frequently than men and boys. Yes. And there are definitely men, and I'm, I don't want to offend any male out there who has a borderline personality disorder diagnosis or anybody that has that diagnosis. It's just not something that I, I believe in. Right. We're point. not, yeah, we're not saying that we're doctors. I'm highly suspicious of it because yeah. you think traditionally 
personality disorders, that's your personality. Mm -hmm. You can't really change your personality. Mm -hmm. And yet this is the only personality disorder that you can be considered recovered from. And also it's overwhelmingly diagnosed in women and girls who have had trauma. Mm -hmm. So it's basically like you're crazy women. Yeah. You're crazy. You have this personality disorder. Couldn't possibly be that you were traumatized and that you need some support or help. Mm -hmm. You're just a manipulative, crazy bitch, basically. Yep. And you really are not that way, and you may have acted out in those ways before, as as have I, mm-hmm. but you are able to have really healthy boundaries and communicate really well and mm-hmm. regulate your emotions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I definitely fit the bill at one point. I hit all nine markers, but I don't anymore. And so it's really hard for me to be like, yeah, I have borderline personality disorder, because I don't. Right. Right now, I don't. So... At that point in my life, I know what was going on, and I had a lot of trauma that just was not dealt with whatsoever, um, and a lot of that was, I was too afraid to talk about it, and because it didn't ever feel safe, and that was a lot of it, was just not feeling safe to talk about things, because I was never believed. When you're taught at a really young age that what you say to even a professional, that you're a liar and it's in your head and you're crazy. You don't feel safe talking about anything because it just feels like, well, what's the point? No one's going to believe me anyways. Yeah. So you had chronic pain. You still have chronic pain Mm -hmm. in a multitude of ways, but you have a really fucking cool story. I'd love for you to talk about that because Mm -hmm. there's such a stigma with mental illness, first of all, Mm -hmm. but there's such a dismissiveness to invisible physical illness. So you get this diagnosis, you're on a bunch of pills, Mm -hmm. you're managing your health as best you can given the tools that you're given. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that you really liked to put content out into the world, like contact on your social media and stuff like that, that talked Mm -hmm. about chronic illness because it is something that you really wanted people to know was real and needed to be taken seriously and that you were going through Can you tell me about this last incident, the impact on social media, Mm -hmm. the way people responded to you, what happened with your recovery, and how that changed your social media presence and how that changed people's perceptions of you? Definitely. Like I was saying earlier, I I spent two months in uh, the hospital, and that was after basically being on medication for five years And it just was one more medication after the other, about 30 pills a day, and my stomach just gave up. At the end of that two months, I started to break. My spirit was pretty good through a lot of it. I felt like I was doing okay. But I started trying to find, because when you're stuck in the hospital, there's not a whole lot to do. So I was on my phone a lot. I'd been on social media and had a pretty large social media presence and posted pretty much every day. So this wasn't abnormal for me to do. But at the time, all I had to post about was being in the hospital. And I found a lot of, you know, chronic pain community on Instagram specifically. So I started to post my story on Instagram. I went from about 100 followers maybe to 700 plus followers in less than two weeks. Wow. And that happened after my first picture with a tube in my nose. Wow, so you're getting a lot of attention mm-hmm. for talking about 
being sick. Mm -hmm. And at first I, I thought, wow, how great. People are reading this. People are being touched by it. I was getting, you know, DMs from young people with chronic pain saying, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's so inspirational and like, it's giving me strength to keep going and you know, just seeing a smile on your face, all this stuff. And it, I felt kind of a pressure then at that point to keep posting and to keep sharing my story. But I was more than happy to do it because, again, I didn't really have a whole lot going on. I was sitting in a hospital bed and I was getting, you know, people to talk to that were going through the same thing. And I quickly came to realize that I was getting all of this attention and the posts that got the most likes were the ones where there was a visible tube in my nose. Okay, so you were getting attention and followers mm -hmm. because you were sick, yes. basically. Yep. Do you feel, this is just a little side note, but is there a fetishization? Do you feel that you got fetishized because of being... I do. Um, it didn't happen right away, but all of a sudden there started to be people that weren't in the chronic pain community. And I'm not saying that all of these people were like that, but I started getting some DMs just hitting on me, but in a in a very different way. And I, I don't really know how to explain it. It just felt like they wanted to hear how sick I was and they wanted to kind of take care of me and make me feel better. And I think that was the fetish is Oof. you're sick and I can take care of you. Um, okay. It just kind of spiraled out of control. And I, I mean, I went from, you know, maybe 20, 40 likes on a post. And the one that I got the most likes on was with you in it after you had done my makeup. Okay. So when I had my hair and makeup done and a tube in my nose, I had almost 400 likes on that. Oh, shit. I did not know that. Yeah. That's the first time I think you've told me that. And yeah. that's really sickening. Yeah. So you were... And being... I didn't want to tell you because I thought you'd be kind of grossed out by it. I That makes me sick. Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me. No. But that's really sickening. So there's a group, I guess, of people. There's a subculture, subgenre of people who fetishize beautiful women that are mm -hmm. sick mm -hmm. and don't want to yuck anybody's yum, but when somebody's really, really suffering and yeah. people start drawing to them because it's sexually or romantically arousing for them, that's mm -hmm. got to feel really shitty. Yeah, because like I said, I, I was trying to reach out and help other people and also find a community that felt safe to talk with. And it kind of robbed me of that and made it feel just like I was some sick thing that people enjoyed seeing be sick. And the sicker yeah. I got, the more people tuned in. And then if I, I like didn't post for a couple days once and I came back on and I had like 30 DMs that were like, where are you? Where are you? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I was just like, oh my god, like, I had never needed to, like, needed to post, and I felt like I, I had to at that point. And yeah, like, most people that don't have an Instagram that's illness-related like that, mm -hmm. think about how many times you go on, like, a trip, or you go on vacation with your family, or you just get busy for a couple days, and you don't post. Mm -hmm. Imagine getting 30 DMs from strangers mm -hmm. asking if you're alive. That's yeah. gotta be really fucking freaky. Yeah, it just felt very invasive, and I, I realized I was putting my own story out there so 
I felt like I couldn't feel that way. And I was like, well, I kind of asked for this. But I didn't. I didn't mm-hmm. ask for yeah, it. Yeah, no, you didn't. And I was quite literally dying at, at one point. I mean, I didn't post because I had gotten back into the hospital. My stats had completely tanked and I wasn't okay enough to even use my phone. So then to come on and have people be like, are you dead? It was, it was, um, it was really jarring. It just felt like, okay, this isn't my page anymore. This is just for other people. Wow. But I still felt like I had to post because there were so many young people who felt inspired. I didn't want to let them down. So I kept posting me with a big smile and, you know, what was going on and stay positive. And while that was how I felt, I didn't necessarily want to post it that day. But I felt like I had to post every single day after that point. So when you got to your sickest, Mm -hmm. tell me what that was like. I mean, because you thought that you were going to die. I did. Like you really thought you were going to die. And you had this social media presence Mm -hmm. where your identity was just a person that was very sick. Mm -hmm. So you went from being a human being to being the Mm -hmm. set of diagnoses and you are pretty sure that this is the end. Mm -hmm. So talk about what the doctors did, how they treated you, and what made you make the final decisions to be where you are now. Right off the bat, going in, it very quickly became more about the medications I was on and over why I was really there. I still don't know what exactly happened and nobody does because I went in and as soon as I was admitted into the hospital, it just became a war at every single hospital with every single doctor about getting my medication. Because I couldn't swallow the pills that I was prescribed, they were using an IV and that very quickly became a no-go and okay so just to ask you really quickly Mm -hmm. just because other people that might be listening don't necessarily know your history at the time you were on several Mm painkillers that are like schedule two so they're very strictly regulated yeah i was on heavy doses of tramadol a muscle relaxer called flexoral and an extended release version of it called amrix okay so you were so you were on medications that were at frequency and at dosages mm-hmm. that most people couldn't really necessarily tolerate. Like if couldn't I took function. as yeah, like if I took as many medications as you had been taking every day for years, you would have died. I would have died, but you had developed a tolerance and this was the thing yeah. that was necessary for your pain management. So yes. you were going to the doctor, you're sicker than ever and you're having to fight and argue with these doctors yep. to try to get these medications. Yes. Because while I wasn't there for my pain, I was in a lot of pain. I'm prescribed this, so I should be able to have this. And I also have medicinal cannabis, and that's a big part of my pain management, which obviously you can't use while you're in the hospital. So to be able to cover all of my medications, they were giving me IV morphine, which I never outright asked for. This was just the easiest way for them to manage my pain. That was always when I came in, that's just what they did. But then by the next morning, the doctor, the next doctor would come in and say, absolutely not. We're not doing IV morphine. We're not doing any of this. If you can't swallow it, you don't get it. And wow. So that sounds cruel. 
Yes. So they're they're putting you on medications and they're ripping you off of them. Mm-hmm. You're having withdrawals while you're in the most pain you've ever been in your life. Yes. And fuck. And that's assuming really I'm intense. dying. And, right. And was dying, uh, you know, in the heart wing. And to then have to be arguing with doctors for medication that you're prescribed on top of it, it just felt cruel. It felt like I was in a psychological horror movie. And every morning I didn't know what I was going to wake up to because hospitals are run by what are called hospitalists. They walk in and they walk in as your acting physician. They don't have to look at a single thing that any of your primary care doctors, specialists, even the doctor the night before did. They can just come in and completely change the course of what's going on. And that's how hospitals are run. Holy shit. So what we think of... When we think of you go to the hospital, we think, oh my gosh, okay, they know my primary care provider. Mm -hmm. They've got a chart with all of my medical history in it, all of my current medications. I go to the hospital. Doctor looks at that, goes, here's how we're going to treat you based on your history and your needs and your meds now. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Like, that's totally not true. There is no continuity of care anymore. Wow. At all. So... You can go in and have what you had, which is like a decade of medical history, mm-hmm. and a doctor can walk in and know nothing about that and not yep. even really read your chart and just be like, here's what I'm going to do today, and then when I get off work, the next person on shift is going to do whatever they want to do. Yep. Holy fuck. That's so disgusting. Yep. So here you are. You're really vulnerable. And I remember being there. I was there for, what, two days? for a couple, a couple of them. And it was really horrific to watch. I mean, God, that was, I mean, it was really, really difficult to watch, but it was obviously exponentially more intense and emotionally draining and physically painful for you. Mm -hmm. But the way that the doctors were treating you and the nurses were treating you, and we can totally edit this out if you're not comfortable with this. What I saw when I saw them walk in, Mm -hmm. there is this woman who is very thin Mm -hmm. she's young she's very pretty she's got tattoos she's got stretched ears scars from a past history of Mm self-injury and she's asking for Mm painkillers what I was seeing just intuitively was them walking in seeing that and being like this is a medication seeking patient just because they were making a lot of assumptions based on your appearance, that you're anorexic, you're mentally mm-hmm. ill, and you're a drug addict. Is that yep. what you were perceiving? Yep. And a lot of the time when I would get upset and finally start crying, it was immediately, do we need to call psych? Why is no one paying attention to my stomach that just isn't working anymore? Right. And it just kept blowing my mind every single day that it was just overlooked why I was there because all they cared about was fighting with me and telling me, I mean, the last doctor that I saw straight up said, yes, I know better than your specialists. And this is just a hospitalist. And he was maybe in his thirties. So there's no way he's like fresh out of school, walked in, never looked at my chart. He didn't even know what hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome was. But he knew more than your specialist. He knew more than my specialist, though. The last time that I went in was because my tube had clogged for the third time. And they had told me, if it clogs, come on in and we'll take it out and we'll take care of you until you go in for this test. I was only going to be there a day 
the plan was to just keep me comfortable and keep fluids in me. And this doctor came in and changed all of that and said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're not going to give you fluids. We're not going to give you your medication. You can have your medication if you'll swallow it. Now, this is two months after nothing has been on my stomach at all, not even water. And he's asking me to take a handful of pills and see what happens. Jesus Christ. And that doesn't take a doctor to know. I mean, if you've ever had the flu, you're not going to just take pills. You're you're going right. to get sick. Right. So talk to me about when you really hit what they call rock bottom, I guess. The last time you were in the hospital and when you decided to make the decisions that changed your life, really, and brought you to where you are today. Mm-hmm. After that doctor just said, you know, you can either take this handful of pills or basically F off. I was there for a few hours and I remember laying there before they pulled my tube out. I kind of just accepted that I was going to die. To me, it felt like he was sending me home to die. You're 28 years old and Mm -hmm. you are a mom of a five-year-old. Yes. And you thought that you were going to die. I, at that point, because my tube had clogged on a Friday morning, and it was that Saturday, well over 24 hours since I had had any nutrition. He had cut my bag of saline that morning, so I hadn't had any fluids for about 12 hours. Um, No medication since that morning as well, so about 12 hours. So I was going home already depleted. I was told that I was supposed to fast and not take any of my medication anyways for this test on that Monday, which was why they were going to originally keep me there and make sure that I didn't die. So when this doctor said, no, I'm sending you home, to me that meant you're going to go home and die. I just kind of, I don't know, I just accepted it and just wanted to leave as fast as possible. They pulled my tube and... I was home alone. I just wanted to be alone because I didn't know what was about to happen. I didn't want anyone around me. Um, I knew I was about to detox and I knew that there was a high chance I might not make it and I didn't want anybody to see me like that. There was nothing anyone could do and it was almost worse having people around that wanted so badly to help but couldn't. So I went home and I honestly don't remember most of that weekend. Saturday and Sunday are a complete blur. My dad stayed home and he stopped by twice a day and let out my dogs and poked in and saw me, but I don't even remember him being here. Okay, so when you got home, it sounds almost like you were kind of preparing for the end. Yeah. Like, didn't want to see people, weren't yep. doing anything, you had accepted that you were going to die. Mm-hmm. You were detoxing from your medications. Mm-hmm. Doctor basically told you to go fuck yourself. Yep. So what was the moment where you were like, no, I am going to choose not to let this take me? And what was that like? Well, in the blur of cold sweats and whatnot, there was a few times where I was quite sure I was dead. I just remember waking up that Monday morning and I was still alive. I had made it two days without any water, any food, Two days with no water, no medication, I felt like a different person. I woke up and felt as if I had died and (laughs) been reborn. As ridiculous as that may sound to some people, I... I mean, it does sound ridiculous, but then also, like, I fucking saw it. Because I saw you in the hospital, and Mm -hmm. I saw how sick you were. I went home, 
and saw you get readmitted into the hospital and we were communicating. Mm -hmm. I went to New York Mm -hmm. and I don't think I realized how sick you were. No. And we're like best friends. So Yeah. I really didn't tell anybody how sick I felt or what was going on because I didn't want anybody to worry and again there was nothing anyone could do. Right. Also, that Monday was the day that I flew home from New York. Mm-hmm you and I FaceTimed for the first time in like a week. I hadn't seen you in person mm-hmm. since I had visited you in the hospital. Yeah. And it was that Monday, I think, you did your makeup for the first time. You still had the mm-hmm. braids in your hair that I put in your hair yep. at the hospital, mm-hmm. which was two weeks prior. So she had had these braids in her hair. Maybe even more than that, That were like honestly. two weeks old. <laughs> it was. They were in there for almost the whole time. But I remember you FaceTiming me. And you look healthier Mm -hmm. than I had ever seen you. Yeah. You were just like, I am alive. You could see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw you and I immediately started crying. Yeah. Obviously, there was some switch that flipped in you when you woke up and you were like, fuck this. I'm not going to die. I'm Mm -hmm. detoxed from these medications. And you obviously have not gotten back to the medications. No. So talk about where you are now. What's going on in your life? How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. You're obviously sitting here. I'm sitting here with you (laughs) on your bed. You're fucking healthy. We just went out to lunch together. We were laughing and talking and making content for your YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Yeah. You shouldn't be here. And if you are here, you've got all these chronic illnesses. You should be heavily dosed up on medication and not able to do half of the things that you do in a day Mm -hmm. ever. So you had a really amazing supernatural transformation. Yeah. Um, so basically that Monday was, that was the first time I put anything on my stomach and it was just some aloe water (laughs) and I spent the whole day nursing that and drank it and it felt like poison in my stomach. But I, I had this feeling of this is my second chance. And while I was in the hospital at one point, I, I just remember thinking if I get out of here, And if I get another chance, I'm doing it all different. So when I woke up on that Monday, I just knew. I knew this was my second chance. And I had already detoxed off everything. So to just go back onto it seemed crazy. I finally had an opportunity that I hadn't had in 14 years of my life since I first got put on medication where I was in control of my own health. And I fired all of my doctors. I decided I'm going to do this med-free. And I decided that I'm never going to do that again because that wasn't worth it. I saw what could happen and I knew that I was just headed down that exact same path if I did the exact same thing. Cleaned out my room. I mean, my room looked like a hospital room. I had a walker. Um, I was really weak. I All my muscles had atrophied. And I just slowly started advancing my diet. By that Friday, I was drinking just a big protein shake. A week after I got discharged, I took my daughter school shopping. We walked around Target. Mm-hmm. A week later, I went to a Taylor Swift concert. A I week remember a- that. <laughs> that was great to see. A week after that, I had a new job. This was literally only two months ago yeah, that so this, this was, happened. So this was like end of August. Mm-hmm. Early it September, is, yeah. Yeah, end of August, early September... And we are in the second day of November. So Mm -hmm. this has been like an eight-week transformation, if that. Yeah. Here you are now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this was a really long time of 
suffering mm-hmm. to come to this revelation that you can trust yourself yep. and that you know what's best for you mm-hmm. and that doctors don't necessarily know what's best for you mm-hmm. and that you have the second chance at life. So you really grabbed the bull by the horns. Mm-hmm. I felt like for my whole life it was, how do I get away around this? How do I get something to put a Band-Aid over this? Or how do I work against all of these things and I had to figure out how to instead work with my body and um, I think I said earlier I don't see myself as sick anymore I don't call myself sick my body needs more some more self-care than some other people and that's fine and if I need to rest then I rest but a lot of it is just mind over matter I'm in pain all the time it doesn't matter if I'm in pain laying in bed or if I'm in pain out doing something, I'm still in pain. And you were in pain when you were on meds anyway. I was, yeah. I think that was the scariest thing was to see how little all of that medication was actually doing anything. But when you're in such an extreme amount of pain and somebody tells you this will take away even a small amount, you're just like, give me it, give me it. I don't care. Give me it. And even that tiny little bit of numbing is, you think, everything. Right. It's like childbirth, but all the time. Like, I remember being in labor, Mm -hmm. doing a natural birth, Mm -hmm. and them being like, we can give you, like, a little bit of lavender oil. do it. Give me it. Yeah. You were saying, I mean, I remember you, when you were on all of those medications, saying, oh, yeah, well... I'm still in pain all the time. So mm-hmm. you're still in pain. You're working with the pain as opposed mm-hmm. to working against it. Yeah. Because you are more effectively managing this, you're able to do stuff that mm-hmm. you've always wanted to do that you've never thought you could do. Yeah. So you are in the process of really exploring your passions. You're doing some really cool shit right now. Yeah. It started with the job that I got. I have always worked with animals. I am a dog trainer. And now I work as a dog walker, as a midday dog walker. I also have my daughter full-time, which is something I've never been able to do since she was born. Um, I've always had to have my parents have her for at least a few days. It was like half and half. For some of it, it was even less than that, depending on how I felt. So this is the first time in a long time that I've had her full-time. She was going to school near my parents' house, and two weeks into it, we switched her to the school over here because I was better, and my parents were weary of it, and I was like, nope, I'm okay now. I'm okay, and I'm going to do this. And I started working, and I have my daughter full-time, and my job is walking dogs, so I'm... You're walking. I'm walking, and there was months where, like I said, I had a walker. I could barely walk to my own bathroom. And now I'm walking at least two hours a day, sometimes four hours. That's something I never would have guessed that I could be able to do. And even the second week of where I was even eating, like before the Taylor Swift concert, I had started to do some strength exercises, which sounds crazy, Since I hadn't eaten anything, I was on my second week of eating and I was starting to do like two crunches and a couple squats, but I was very determined to build back this muscle because I had lost everything. I had no fat on me. I had no muscle on me. 
now I have a job where I'm doing cardio every day and I get up at 7.30 every morning and I, I immediately do some strength exercises and even if it's just five minutes just to get me moving and so you stretch have, and... So you have like four chronic illnesses. Yeah. And you do more... <laughs> yeah, you have at least yeah. four chronic illnesses and you do more physical activity every day Mm-hmm. before, like, noon than yeah. the average American. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. And you're yeah. doing it without pain medications. Mm-hmm. So if I recall this correctly, so you medicate with cannabis legally because she has yes. a cannabis license. Yep. Do you take any other meds, supplements? Do you do anything else mm-hmm. for any kind so of management? The one medication that I'm still working to get off of is my anxiety meds, which I'm on clonopin. That's something I've been on the longest. I've been on it for 10 years, almost 11, um, which is a very long time to be on a benzo. And it's an extremely hard medication to get off of. Yeah. It's, it's the only thing I've ever felt like I was maybe prone to being addicted to. I yeah. was on benzodiazepines mm-hmm. a couple different times for short periods of time sure. and I can understand how they'd be really hard mm-hmm. to get off. It's of. also really dangerous to, you can't just go off of them cold Turkey. And that was part of my initial worry on detoxing. Uh, you can have seizures just from going off of it for a day, especially at the dosage that I was at and how long I had been on it. It makes it even more dangerous to do that. Okay. You went from 30 pills a day mm-hmm. to one Right? Yep, I take half a milligram to one milligram a day, and that's it. Okay, and then you medicate with cannabis kind mm-hmm. of on an as-needed basis. Yep, and I'll, I take a multivitamin, I take riboflavin for headaches if I get them, and okay. that's it. <laughs> and then what's your diet like? Um, my diet, well, as soon as I could eat, it was whatever I could eat. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely wasn't as healthy as it should have been. Um at this point, I try to eat vegan as, as much as possible. If, the, if it's available, I will. I'm in the process right now. So mostly vegan. I can't have dairy, so that kind of makes it easier. But it's a lot of you know protein shakes. I try to get as much protein and carbs as possible for energy. And I kind of just eat whatever I want, to be totally honest. I don't I don't try to restrict too much. I try to stay away from junk as much as possible, but... I feel like if you're living a healthy lifestyle, it's okay to indulge. You know, like, I don't think there's anything that you absolutely just cut out of your life forever. Okay, so you're not taking a bunch of medications. Mm -hmm. You are not on a really crazy restrictive diet. Not at all. I mean... I had Taco Bell Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) So you're moving (laughs) towards a completely plant-based diet and you're mostly plant-based now. Yeah. You get up, you do some strength training... You do cardio for a while. Mm-hmm. Are you doing anything in terms of mindfulness practice, mm-hmm. spiritual stuff? Like, I mean, if you were to go into a doctor and be like, yeah, I was on 30 pills every mm-hmm. day. I'm not on those pills anymore. I'm only on one. I was going to die, but I didn't die. <sighs> and I eat a vegan diet and I walk around a bunch and I do a bunch of squats in my bedroom I mean, that doctor's going to look at you like you're fucking crazy. Yeah. And like you're some sort of medical miracle. Yeah. And as much as what you did was rare, Mm -hmm. it's not unheard of. And there are lots and lots of people who had the same experience you did where they were like, oh, I'm not being validated in the medical community and I'm dying and they're Mm -hmm. not helping me. So I'm going to do what feels right for my body. Yeah. 
what mentally and spiritually do you do to take care of yourself? Is there an element of those things that inserts itself or that you insert into your life to maintain your health? Definitely. I do a lot of guided meditations. I have a mind that races. So I find just sitting and trying to meditate on my own, I struggle with that quite a bit. So for me, finding some good guided meditations has been the most helpful. Falling asleep to healing type of music or guided meditations as well. So I do a lot of meditating. I also do believe in some type of higher purpose. I definitely have a spiritual aspect to me, and I I truly believe that it's what you put into the world. If you are exuding positivity and want your life to be better, you can. It's that easy. You just have to do it. I sat and thought, I'm so sick. I can't get out of bed. I'm sick. I'm in so much pain. I used to wake up every morning and the first thing I would do is analyze my body and go, what hurts today? What's in pain? And that was the worst thing I could have possibly done. If if I did that every day today, I would be in a way worse spot. Do you do the the opposite now? Like, do you say, like, what feels good or what? Yeah. Uh, The first thing I do, I sleep with the uh, blinds open now. I used to, I had insomnia my entire life and I've cured it in two weeks. Um, that's crazy. And I didn't even think about that when we started recording. So I remember I used to get texts from you at like three in the morning or you'd sit up and you'd be watching like conspiracy theory documentaries and stuff like that. And now I text you and I'm like, I'm sometimes asleep before 10. I know that's crazy. And that happened like a snap. I mean, and I, I had tried everything I thought under the sun to cure my insomnia. I just have to say this. You've gone through so much transformation Mm -hmm. that even sitting here talking about it, I'm listening to you talk. She has been doing that, and I didn't even realize it. It flew under the radar Mm -hmm. because of all the other crazy, amazing shit that you're doing. Yeah. So you are walking dogs now, which animals are a passion of yours. Mm -hmm. You foster animals. You Uh adopt animals. Train animals. You care for animals. All that stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. You are now making plans to start a nonprofit yeah. for animals. Yep. And that's something that you're deciding to do now, even though that's something that you've always dreamed of. Yeah. So how do you go from, yeah, I always wanted to do this, but never thought I could, to now I'm actually taking the steps to do it? It just was a complete mindset shift from... I can't do any of this or I have to wait until this doctor's appointment or I have to wait until I'm better or I have to wait until this or that. And you don't have to wait for anything. There's never going to be the perfect time to do anything. And if you're constantly waiting for it, it's never going to happen. Totally. As soon as I realized that and as soon as I realized there's no reason that I can't start it right now, why can't I start it? I don't have to. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Every day I would write at least two goals I had for the day to accomplish, even if it was something as little as research how to start a nonprofit. And as long as you just are doing something every single day, eventually you're going to get to the point where you're like, oh, I already did everything and I'm ready to do it. That's crazy that you say that because I have a friend who he has this really harrowing story, different than yours, but he had a corporate job 
and he got pink slipped the same day that his fiance left him. She mm. got full custody of their kid. Mm-hmm. He ended up moving back in with his parents and becoming addicted to opiates. Mm. And now he is the VP of an IT company and he always says, my biggest problem now is everybody hates a Democrat and a BMW. (laughs) (laughs) I asked him, I was like, what the fuck? How do you get from there to where you are now? And he said the same exact thing that you said. He said, it's little decisions Mm -hmm. every day consistently. So we always think for whatever reason, being able to do something as having the perfect circumstances to be able to do that. And what he said and what you are saying is that you don't need that. In some circumstances, you need to be at your absolute worst to be like, okay, this is the only life I have. Mm -hmm. It could go at any time. Yep. Things don't have to be perfect. I'm going to start working towards this. Yeah. Steve Jobs said something too. I mean, Steve Jobs was kind of a prick. (laughs) But (laughs) I heard somewhere that Steve Jobs said that he would regularly meditate on Mm. the idea that eventually he was going to die. And the fact that he knew he was going to die and had really become intimate with that idea Mm -hmm. that he had a limited amount of time Mm -hmm. on this earth was what caused him to be able to do so much. So when somebody talks about having like a near-death experience like yours, that sounds like that really aligns with that sort of attitude is you went from, oh my God, this is the end to now you're like, well, I lived, so now I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want and I'm not going to wait for the circumstances to be perfect. Yeah. Being faced with your own mortality is something that as a society we run from. Mm -hmm. We run from death. We run from it. We try to ignore it. We don't want to think about it. I think we need to understand even more this is you only get one this is all you get you could die tomorrow a million people die every single night every single night you go to bed and you wake up a million people didn't so every morning you wake up you should be so blessed and you should wake up and be excited and the thing that you have to realize is if you wake up and you're dreading your day you're dreading your job you're dreading this you're dreading that that's going to be your life forever. You need to find what wakes what wakes you up, what gets you up, what energizes you that day, what makes you want to get out of bed and then do it. And I'm not telling you to quit your job right away, but if you're not following your passion and your dream, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to feel the way that you're hoping one day, if I just keep doing this over and over and over and over and over, eventually... I'll get to be happy because I'm putting in the work. Well, yeah, you're putting in the work towards something you don't care about. So why on earth would that make you happy? Right. Or you're treading water in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like as a makeup artist, I worked for salons a lot and I was like, yeah, I'm working for a salon or I'd work for a makeup company Mm -hmm. and I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm working towards my future. And I was thinking very small because I was Mm -hmm. thinking that I was working like in the capacity of working through that company and it wasn't until I got fired where I was like oh I need to be going out and doing this on my own and it Mm -hmm. sounds like so you're working this job as a dog walker you're doing it to rebuild your body your mind to be around dogs Mm -hmm. which you love being around animals but you understand that this is something that you're doing in the interim 
that has that element of joy in it, but yes. it's not your forever. Yes. Yeah. Couldn't be happier. I'm, I'm so excited to go to work every day. I love my job. And it's not about the money right now. Is money tight? Absolutely. But this job also gives me the freedom to have time to follow these passions and dreams and goals of mine. Really, ultimately, I had to just figure out what's the end goal? What do I want to get to? And once you have that, then you start to break it down into how do I get there? What steps do I need to take? And then break that down even more and then even more. And then you get to every day, okay, what's one thing I'm going to do to get to this point? And like I said, if you just keep going one day at a time, one little thing at a time, eventually you're going to get there. There's no way to not do that if you're continuing to keep that momentum and moving forward. So for me, while I'm walking dogs, I almost feel myself walking towards my goal, walking towards my dream. And it's still something, like I said, that I enjoy doing, that I wake up and I'm excited to go do. Yeah. That's been the most important thing is you should always fill your life with things that make you happy and joyful and energized and keep you going. And don't, don't get stuck in anything. Don't get stuck in a persona. Don't get stuck in an identity. Don't get stuck in a label. You are your own person. You get to decide. Even if you've been that person for 20 plus years, you can still change and be a totally different person the next day if you decide to. That's awesome that you said that. And so going back to what we had talked about a little bit earlier, Instagram, social yeah. media, that account, that persona, mm -hmm. how people were feeding into that. Mm -hmm. What are you doing on the Instagram account now? I started, I kept posting and it was really crazy to see the immediate decline in how many likes I got, the more I got better. The better I got, the less likes I got. Wow. So people, so people wanted you to be sick. Yeah. Why mm -hmm. do you think that is? It just holds a mirror to their own insecurity. Well, why, this girl could barely walk two days ago, two weeks ago, and now she's fine and she's not on medication and she's smiling and happy and I, why am I not happy? Why can't I do that? Well, I'm still sick. I have the same thing as her. She has more illnesses than me and I can't even get out of bed and it just most people just don't want to see another person doing better than them because right. like I said it holds a mirror to themselves and makes them evaluate their own life I think a lot of people that have a social media account that is based on health fitness or mm -hmm. I see it a lot with the vegan community with vegan sure. diets sure. a lot of people would rather not see that mm-hmm or they would rather attack that. Sure. And that's shocking to me that somebody who was posting about having chronic illness and mm -hmm. their health was rapidly declining and they were getting a huge amount of feedback and social media attention mm -hmm. and then you started to get better, which that's what everybody said they wanted for you, right? Yeah. And that's oh, yeah. And you're watching people drop off. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I had this community of people. I felt like I had the support system in these people. And as soon as I was like, nope, I'm med free and I'm doing good. I'm feeling strong. I'm getting better. I immediately was shunned by that community. I was no longer sick enough to be a part of the chronic illness community. So um, you were being excluded mm -hmm. because being sick wasn't part of your identity anymore. Yeah. And because you were getting better. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
How did that feel? I mean, it was weird and it was just gross. Honestly, it felt really gross. I never wanted a big platform on Instagram. I didn't care about followers and likes and stuff. But it was gross to see the almost 400 likes on a picture of me with makeup and a tube in my nose. And then I'm posting me smiling, radiant, and spreading positivity and having it be like 20 likes. Wow. Having people comment and be like, oh, well, glad that's working for you. And that was about it. And then never heard from again. There was some Facebook posts or groups that I was a part of for chronic illness as well. And people that were just diagnosed, things of that nature. And I remember I posted something about not being on medication and um, maybe trying something natural before jumping to pills because it had worked really well for me. And I was attacked. To me, it seemed like a very harmless post to just say, hey, like, you could try this. This is working really well for me. And just exercise and, you know, diet and getting out there, moving around, getting up in the morning, starting your day, meditating. 50 comments after that saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't, that's not going to work. Yeah, I'm glad that's working for you, but. <laughs> uh, and, and meanwhile, you almost just died. I clearly must not be in enough pain to know what they were going through. And I remember being that angry person, yeah. reading somebody else commenting, saying, oh, just exercise and do this and that, and being like, fuck you, and thinking that you're better than everybody because you exercise. Like, you must not be in that much pain. You must not be in the kind of pain that I'm in. Yeah. But that's just not true. Right. You and I have talked about the memes that we see. I sure. have been told that I have persistent chronic mental illness. Mm. I'm medication free. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of the same things you do. Again, it's mental, it's invisible, but people die from it all the time. Mm -hmm. You have invisible illnesses that mm -hmm. people die from all the time and are in an extreme amount of pain. And I've seen memes that are like, do not tell people with mental illness yes. to go outside or meditate or mm -hmm. use essential oils or yep. eat better or anything like this. And they're really, really committed to, I have a medical diagnosis, mm -hmm. I am sick, I am deficient, mm -hmm. I need prescription medications, and here I am medication-free. And yeah, I still have depression and mm -hmm. anxiety. I might always have it, but it's not something that I try to use as an excuse. Yeah. And it's something that I try my best to work with instead of against, just like yep. you just said. And I feel the hostility and I have mm -hmm. to be really careful when I talk to other people yeah. that are committed to a medication regimen or committed to a diagnosis because they will get really angry and really defensive if you're mm -hmm. like, hey, have you tried this? Yeah. Because number one, and I hate to say this, but we're Americans and we want to pop a pill and we want to have yep. it go away. And exercise takes work. Eating yeah. well takes work. Being mindful takes work. You know, being grateful takes work. And mm -hmm. being miserable and popping a pill and eating junk food and laying around and giving yourself excuses, that doesn't take a lot of work. And when someone... It doesn't, it doesn't. I, think I mean, people, it, do it does. People think in that, the end it that, does. that they're not putting in any work. But if you look at how much work it takes to stay that miserable... It takes a lot of work to be a victim. It's so yeah. exhausting. Of course you don't have energy for anything else. You're so dead set on being that person that how could you possibly think outside of it? Right. 
And then also I think people think that it's very dismissive. Like if I tell you to go outside and get some fresh air, Mm -hmm. that what I'm saying is that you don't really have a legitimate illness. Yeah. And that's never what I've said. Because I know that what I go through and I know that what you go through Mm -hmm. is totally legitimate. I just know that I have taken medication that the Columbine kids took before they shot up a school and killed themselves. They were going to blow up the entire school. Yeah. That was their goal. Yeah. And now those medications are not given to young kids, but they're still on the market. Mm -hmm. When you talk to somebody with a physical chronic illness and you say, hey, have you tried stretching or exercise or whatever do you so you're you're saying that you also feel that same resistance like you went into this group you know what you're talking about you have the diagnosis you're not a spectator that's trying to give Pollyanna Mm -hmm. platitudinal advice like you are somebody who has lived this and it's almost taken your life and Mm -hmm. you said here's what worked for me and people came at you like you were judging them and dismissing them Mm -hmm. a lot of them were older And I think they thought, I'm too young to possibly, like, have any knowledge of what I'm talking about. I still get looks because I have a uh, handicap placard because it helps me get stuff done. If I need to run errands, yeah, that little bit does help. But I've had people call on me at Target and I've seen the cops come in and walked past them while they're saying, yeah, she's still in the store. She's in, it's the Subaru out there. So I know that they're running my plates to see if I am actually the owner of that. Just because they saw me get out of the car and immediately assumed, oh, she stole that or that's her grandma's or whatever. And they see you as somebody that couldn't possibly have. So even people inside of a community you should Mm -hmm. belong to are ostracizing and judging you because what's going on in you, A, is not outwardly visible Mm -hmm. and B... I'm not sick enough anymore. I don't look sick enough. Right. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So to bring everything full circle, you're just fucking awesome. You know, when Dan and I started this podcast, we knew the kind of stuff that we wanted to touch on, and you are such an awesome representation of that. It's so cool to see that your mindfulness and your inner fight, insistence to live your fullest life has literally saved your life Mm -hmm. it has improved your quality of life yeah and it hopefully inspires people even more than when you were posting and you Mm -hmm. were talking about being sick yeah because I I'm actually off of all social media and have been for probably over a month now I don't even remember when I did it it's been at least a month I'd say yeah I'm the happiest I've ever been I don't feel the need to be a part of a community that is like that. And I think that it's something that people can really feed off of in a really negative way. And if you can just step outside of that world of social media, it gives your brain so much more room to figure out what do I really want to do without all of these other people's opinions. I don't want to make it sound like this has been super easy for me either. This is a lot of work. I work at this every single day. Every morning I wake up and, you know, the alarm goes off and there's some days where I'm like, man, I would love to stay in bed. It's so warm and cozy. That would be so nice to sleep in. But I get up and I just get moving and I keep doing it and I keep working out and I keep stretching and I keep drinking water and I keep doing 
you know, setting my intentions, setting my goals for the day, and I just keep going. And that's, that's all you can do. And just do it. Anything that, because your brain will constantly find a way to talk yourself out of it, no matter what it is. And path you just, of least resistance. Yep. Path, path of least resistance, yep. right? So you just have to fight that urge. It's going to feel wrong for a really long time. Because your body and your mind is so used to doing this thing over and over and over, being this person, being this lifestyle, living that lifestyle, you, you have to make new habits and it takes a while and it's going to feel weird for a while, but eventually it feels amazing. And eventually you feel like, how on earth did I ever do anything other than this? And that's something that I never would have believed if you told me th even three months ago. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you.